The scripture reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 40. It's on page 1119 of the Bibles in the Pews. It's kind of long, but that's okay. It's really good. We um, are basing our um, whole worship service on this passage this morning, um, and so we've been incorporating that in the litanies and in the songs. Um, a lot of things point to Isaiah chapter 40, so as we read it, after going through uh, the litany this morning, you'll, you'll probably recognize some parts of it, but this is, really, this is really an awesome, awesome passage of Scripture. As we approach God's Word, let's come before Him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. We thank you for the way that it inspires us, for the way that it brings us comfort and hope, for the way that it instills faith in us and helps us to trust in you more and more. Lord, we pray that as we read these words of comfort to a people in exile, that you will send the comforter to us, your Holy Spirit, so that we may be filled with your presence and know that you are God. We pray that you would transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would write this word on our hearts and instill it in our minds so that we may serve you in goodness and in truth. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, Every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? 
Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. This is the word of the Lord. May his name be praised. That is a beautiful passage. I need to recover a little bit. <laughs> Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, today is the second Sunday of Advent. That time of the year when we get ready for Christmas, that four weeks of the year where we're looking forward, where we're anticipating, where we're sitting on the edge of our seats just waiting for Christmas, a time when we can celebrate with friends and family, celebrate with our church. We look forward to the day of Jesus' birth, and it's a time of preparation and a time of reflection, 
a time of busyness, and a time of waiting. The season of Advent is one of my favorite times of the year. But it's also one of the most challenging times of the year when it comes to worship planning. The season of Advent has these beautiful themes of looking forward to the birth of Christ. We enter into the story of Israel in the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah to come. We look forward to the birth of Christ on Christmas Day, but at the same time, we use that excitement and that anticipation to remember that Jesus is coming again, past, present, and future. And that's a difficult thing to balance as someone who plans and leads worship. People are so excited about Christmas that we just, want to, we just want to do Christmas. We just want to get on with it. We want to sing the Christmas carols and have the Christmas programs and, and set up the Christmas decorations. And, and we do, and we do. And so we have Christmas programs already in December, and some churches even have them in late November. In the malls and the department stores, it's already been Christmas since October. But the season of Advent is about waiting. The holidays are a time of busy preparation, but Advent is a time of waiting. The holidays are a time of hustle and bustle, but Advent is a time of reflection and repentance. The holidays are a time to deck the halls, but Advent is a time for deep spiritual cleaning. Traditionally, in the more ancient churches, Advent was a time that was set aside for fasting, prayer, and giving to the poor. Advent gives us an important opportunity to look at the real struggles of life and the sorrows of life and to see how God's promises speak to those struggles and give us hope. Advent provides a time of the year when we can stop everything and focus on the very pertinent truth that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. For many of us, this is exciting. This is exciting news, the news that Jesus is coming. It's what we've been praying for for our whole lives. It's what we've been waiting for. It's the answer to our prayers. It's what we've lived our whole life for. For others of us, it may be frightening to think that Jesus is coming. Maybe there's something that we've been putting off holding on to some sin in our lives that we know we need to repent of, but just not yet. And so it scares us that Jesus is coming. And for some of us, it's all just fantasy and myth. It's been 2,000 years. Come on. Jesus isn't coming back. There is no end to life on this earth. War, hunger, persecution, violence. This is the way of the world. Maybe we think that Jesus isn't coming back that we're on our own. And it's the same variety of emotions, this variety of responses that the passage in Isaiah that we read for today speaks to. The readings for Advent force us to walk a mile in Israel's shoes. And through Israel's story of promise and kingdom and rebellion and exile and restoration, we learn our own story as the Israel of God, living in exile in this world, waiting for the coming Messiah who will set things right and establish justice and truth over all peoples. And the book of Isaiah is an awesome place to see this all play out. 
The book of Isaiah is an awesome and a poetic retelling of Israel's story of faith. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann compares it to an oratorio like Handel's Messiah, which is something that we do around this time of year as well. We go see Handel's Messiah. And, and in, in oratorios like this, there's all these different voices, all these different voices that speak and respond to each other. Some of the voices are in tension, some of the voices are in opposition, but it's through all of these voices together that we learn the story of the book of Isaiah, the main theme of the book of Isaiah, that God is powerful and that God is faithful. Isaiah chapter 40 marks a transition point in the book of Isaiah. Up until this point, Isaiah has been prophesying about the, the fall of Israel to Babylon. And throughout his prophecy, there are hints that God will not completely destroy his people, like chapter 11 that we read last week, where, um, where he says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, pointing to the fact that Israel won't be completely destroyed when they're conquered by Babylon. But most of the book of Isaiah up until this point has been judgment. Judgment against Israel, judgment against Jerusalem, God's judgment against an arrogant, unrepentant, irreligious people because Israel has failed to fulfill their task as God's holy people. This is the message that Isaiah has been asked to bring the people of Jerusalem. This is the message that God gives him and the one that he so eagerly volunteers for in chapter 6, a story that I'm sure many of you know, where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a throne, exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory, and Isaiah is filled with fear because he is a sinful man, an unclean man. But God sends an angel to purify his lips. And then Isaiah fearlessly stands ready to bring God's message of judgment to a people who are living in sin. God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. He is ready and willing to bring God's word. He is enthusiastic and energetic and fiery. But by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah has seen everything that he prophesied actually happen. Everything that God told him to warn the people of, it's all come to pass. The people of Jerusalem have been conquered by Babylon, captured by a pagan nation, exiled from the promised land. Their kings live under house arrest in Babylon. The temple of God has been destroyed. And it's captured so beautifully in the words of Psalm 137, so powerfully, so sadly. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said to us, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. 
He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Those are the songs of the exile. These are the songs of the people of Israel living in exile. Psalm 137. Songs of sadness, of sorrow, of weeping, of anger, of rage, of revenge. These are the emotions of a people who feel that they have been abandoned by their God. The songs of a people who have lost hope. The anger, the frustration, the pent-up rage, the overwhelming sorrow. And so in verse 6, when a voice tells Isaiah, cry out, Isaiah responds with all of the anger and frustration and sadness and rage of the people of Israel. The sorrow that has built up over years in exile. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? I've said everything that you've told me to say. I've prophesied everything that you've told me to prophesy, and all of it has come true. And now you tell me to bring a word of comfort? You tell me to comfort your people? Well, let me tell you something, God. There is no comfort in your word. All people are like grass. When the breath of the Lord blows on them, they wither and they fall. When the Lord speaks, God's people are exiled. When the Lord speaks, nations fall. When the Lord speaks, we wither and we die. Because the word of God stands forever. And we are mere mortals. What comfort is there in your word? What comfort can I offer from the mouth of the Lord to a people who are dust? To a people who you have abandoned? Isaiah is exhausted. Isaiah is angry. Isaiah is very, very sad. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of a people who have lost all hope. And if you look in verse 27, you can see how deep Israel's depression has grown, how profound it is. Israel says, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. The lament of Israel in verse 27 doesn't even address God. It doesn't even speak to God anymore. When we look at the Psalms of Lament in the book of Psalms, almost all of them speak out to God. Even Psalm 137 that we just read. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But Israel's lament in Isaiah 40 verse 27 doesn't even address God. They've given up. They've given up hope. They just state the sad reality as a fact. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. On Friday, I went to Woodland Christian High School to see the new play Flood by Mr. Wickerink. And it tells the story of Dutch immigration to Canada using a series of short scenes, all tied together with the theme of water. And the play was really unique. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before because the scenes were very short and had really elaborate set changes in between each scene. And so when you're sitting in the audience, for about half the play, you're sitting in the dark. You're sitting in the dark while the set's being changed and there's different noises going on, music or a choir singing or the sound of bombs and guns or planes or water. And you're sitting there in the dark and you have no idea what comes next. Is it victory? Is it war? Is it a flood? Is it a journey? 
it's completely dark. And you're kind of uneasy and uncertain and you don't know what's going to happen next or how the story is going to end. And you feel, kind, you feel kind of useless. You feel kind of useless because you're just sitting there and you don't know what's going to happen. And then there's this great scene in the play right before the intermission. And it's set in Zeeland in the southern part of the Netherlands in the flood of 53. And the main character of the play, one of the main characters of the play, uh, Rain, he's sitting in a boat and he's rowing in circles because he lost one of his oars. And he's supposed to be moving his boat around, rescuing people from the flood, but he lost an oar, and so all he can do is paddle in circles, and he just feels so useless. He feels useless. And in the midst of this scene, he cries out to God with all of his anger and frustration and sadness about how life is going as he sits there in his boat, rowing around in circles, no help to anybody, the sea all around him. And sometimes that's how we feel. Life just goes on and on, and nothing gets better, and we wonder what the purpose of it all is. We continue to hear news about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, of ISIS in the Middle East, of Boko Haram in Nigeria, of ongoing ethnic conflicts in parts of Russia and the former Soviet Union, of ongoing racial conflict in the United States, in Ferguson and other cities. And even closer to home, we see friends and family cut by wounds that will not heal, severed relationships, their bodies racked with illnesses that will not heal. And we feel useless. Like rain in his boat, like Isaiah in Babylon, things are so bad that we just have to cry out to God. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? Isaiah's sadness and anger rushes out like a flood, like a broken dam, like a cracked dike. The pent-up emotion of the exile all flows out. What shall I cry? What word of comfort can I bring? What can I say? And God says, tell them I'm coming. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. God tells Isaiah to go to a people who have lost hope, to a people who are living in anger and sorrow, and tell them that God is coming. God has not abandoned his people. He is coming. God has not forgotten his people. He is coming. God has not forgotten his promises. He is coming. 
And the rest of the chapter fleshes this out because, because in the face of Israel's hopelessness, God has to defend himself. God has to defend his character. And so the rest of the chapter answers these two fears that have infected the hearts of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are, are afraid that either God is unable to fulfill his promises, that God is weak and unable to fulfill his promises, or the much worse fear that God is unwilling to fulfill his promises, that God is no longer devoted to his people, that God no longer cares about Israel. And this is why we get these two pictures of who God is here in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 describes God as a powerful warrior coming to celebrate victory over his enemies. And then verse 11 describes God as a gentle shepherd, completely devoted to his flock. And this is the assurance that the rest of the chapter lays out. God is powerful and God is faithful. God is powerful enough to fulfill his promises and God is devoted to his people so he will fulfill his promises. God is more powerful than the nations, more powerful than the idols of Babylon, more powerful than kings and princes, more powerful than the stars in the heavens. That's how powerful the God of Israel is. So powerful that he created all of these things and holds them in place. So powerful that he guides the stars in their march across the sky. And the same God who holds the heavens above the earth and guides the paths of history will come to his people and will restore them. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. How incredible it is then when we read that the creator of the universe became a human being to take upon himself the sins of the world. This is how we know God's power and God's faithfulness. God is so devoted to us that he sent his only son to bear the penalty of our sins, to bear the penalty of death. And God is so powerful that even that death could not lay claim to him, could not hold him down. And so we can hope and trust and rejoice and believe because the God who measures the waters in the palm of his hands holds us close to his heart. The God who holds the heavens above the earth protects us. The God who sees everything watches over us. The God who defeated death fights for us. And so we can stand like Isaiah we can stand on the mountain and we can lift up our voice with a shout and proclaim the good news over all the earth that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That baby boy laid in the manger in the little town of Bethlehem is king over all the earth and he is coming again to right every wrong, to defeat every enemy, and to make all things new. 
Oh, come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel. This is our prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, O Lord, our God, merciful Father, gracious God, righteous King, sometimes in our lives we just have to cry out to you because we feel abandoned, we feel angry, we feel sad. Sometimes we just have to cry out to you But your response to us is to come to us and to comfort us with the assurance that Jesus is coming again. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.